Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Boot Camp as we study Mesachas Yevamos Daf Lamed Ches. I want to dedicate this year Lila Nishmas Rav Yosef Matisyo Ben Meir. It's my uncle who uh, passed away this week. And uh, appropriately so, we're going to discuss the halachas of Yerusha. You should know, of course, that the most important uh, Yerusha that we give over is not the money, it's not the cash, it's not the metaltalin, it is the legacy. That is, of course, why Yaakov Avinu gives a bracha to the people. If you look at the Rabag, the people aren't just people, the people are Klayusro, all of us, his sons. And the Rabag says that is what a person is supposed to do, to give a tzavva, which is the inheritance, not of items, but of the expectations of a life filled with Torah, Yerashamayim, the unique talents, the challenges that we see in each of our children, and hopefully to give over to them living examples. That's why you look at the Haftorah, Pashas Vayichi, Shlomo saying to David Amelech, you have to be a man. These are your responsibilities. The Minhag was at the age of 50 years old. This is brought down by a number of Achronim. I heard this many times from Rav Shechter, that uh, Rav Gifter did this. I think Rav Gifter was married to a relative of Rav Shechter's. Based on a Pasuk in Parshas Bahar, that in the 50th year, Everyone returns Ishalachuzasa. Doesn't just mean physically, but at the age of fifty, I guess we say that's halfway in life, we start thinking midlife, we start thinking about leaving a will. And people, great Gedolim, would write their tzava, the ethical will, but it's also when people would sit down and they would write the last will and testament. So we're in the middle in our Gemara of a bunch of cases where we're not sure exactly who is to be Yorish, who is to be inheriting the person that has passed away. Is it the child of the Zion seven-month pregnancy? Is it the child of the Yavam? And these are complicated situations. The Gemara here, and you can look into the fifth parak of the Rambam, Hilchus Nachlaos, talks about a situation, which is the Halacha, that a grandchild will inherit from the grandfather if the grandson's father hasn't survived. It's still considered to be his inheritance. We're not going through the exact calculations now, and that's part of the challenges that we see on the top of Daf Lamed Ches. Now, all of these halachos, bizman hazeh, seem to be a great challenge because if you follow the halachos of Yerusha, as established in the Torah, with obviously the support that you find in the Gemara, and you can look up these halachos straight out in the Shulchan Aruch and in the Rambam, there is Torah law. Torah law. Torah law says exactly what happens. Husband inherits the wife. We'll discuss more of that next week, how it relates to marriage. But today we're going to deal mostly with sons and daughters, so what happens? What do we do today? If the oldest son gets Pishnayim and the sons inherit and the daughters don't inherit according to Torah law, you understand that we're going to end up with significant fighting within family. There was already this awareness at the times of the Rishonim. And what I want to do today is give an overview of some of the issues. But we always have to start with the Torah principles and to have huge chidushim, as we will have, to see how there could be a workaround. 
Something else that I heard Rav Shechter, where I learned some of these halachas in the past, he discussed a letter that was sent to the great Ragged Shavar. There was already talk about the founding of a Medina. And the question that went to the Ragged Shavar is maybe if they would establish a state, Alpi Halacha, that we should change the laws of inheritance because you'd end up with a lot of conflict already at the time of the Gemara. But we definitely see this at the times of the Rishonim and the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah that we're going to come back to where there was machlokas, and there was certain, as we'll discuss today, workarounds from the issues of inheritance. Now, in our Gemara, it's not as clear that any of these workarounds would actually uh, be implemented because you end up not even sure about whose child this is. And it would be a very fascinating question, which maybe I'm going to touch on next week, about doing a paternity test. We already discussed in the past how a pregnancy test would be able to be used to make certain determinations in the halachas of hachna. But let's say we could do a paternity test. Would that be enough to resolve all of these sveikos? And it's not so pushing. How do you do a paternity test with the deceased? Assuming that halacha would say, okay, do you have to get DNA from the deceased? Right, You need science to be implemented as well. So maybe we'll spend some time on that next week. But coming, So the question that came to the, to the Ragachava, and I'm spending time today, it may sound a little bit less organized, just to show you how relevant these halachas are. The question that came to the Ragachava is if we establish a state, should we use the Torah law or should we use the secular law? Where generally we know what happens today, even if a person dies without the will, the state's going to determine equitable distribution. So the Ragachavar said that, and I never saw this inside, but this I heard from Roshachter, that on a Medina level, you can't go against the Torah law. But in each particular situation, each father is not considered to be going against Torah law if you're going to use a roundabout. The way you would explain it is you're not going to institutionalize a roundabout from the Torah principles, but you may be able to find in each particular situation in every family a halachically valid way to address what the world would call equality. The Gemara tells a story. You find us in Gemara Shabbos. You have it also in a number of other places in the Rishonim that the Stukim, who are uh, very famously identified with only following a Torah Shebechtav and not Torah Shebaal the Rambam actually writes in Perikah that uh, Tzadok and Baisos, the leaders of the movement, we've discussed them in some other shiurim, they didn't believe in anything. But everybody has to market their agenda and their movement, and they didn't think they'd get people to join them if they would say, we don't believe in Torah Shebechtav. So one of their issues was actually with Yerusha, especially any rabbinic applications of Yerusha. And they felt that it was anti-woman. They were uh, standing up for the women. At least that's what they used in their marketing. You find some of these arguments as well in uh, early Christianity relating to some of the Jewish laws. So the bottom line is we are stuck, at least it looks like that, with Torah laws. And if you look at our Gemara, 
it seems clear that's what's happening with fathers, with grandchildren. There's no mention of any roundabouts. So I want to give an overview. I'm not going to quote as many sources today as I usually do because I'm putting together a few different sources to what we do halacha lamasa today. And at the end of the year, I'll just knock off, I'll quote you some of the most important uh, makoros in Rishonim as well as in Achronim. Now, you may think that we should be able to function with dina machusa dina. We have a general principle, Gemar and Dharam as well as in other places, that when it comes to dina mamanus, when it comes to the legal realm of finan- in the financial world, we follow the law, the law of the land. The way I like to explain it is we don't always follow the law of the land of Torah law is stricter, but that serves as the floor, F-L-O-O-R, for Jewish law. So it looks like we are in the realm of Mamanus. So let's pass over the laws of Yerusha from the Torah and do, do, do Dina de Machusa Dina. When I was actually uh, dabbling a little bit in the study of law, this was my area, in the practice of law, in the surrogates, court, and trust in estates. So we have cases of a person dies without a will, the, store, the, the law tells us what to do, as well as in a situation where obviously you have a last will and testament. Now, we all know that even in a last will and testament, there are a number of challenges to the will. If we could show that the party did not have full awareness of the contract, and there are a number of other defenses to contracts that will work here as well, then you end up with some very fascinating legal cases. So how do we get around about this Dina Machusadina issue as we seem to follow that in other areas of law? Now, one very practical application of this actually discussed by Ryakov Kamenetsky in Emish Lyakov. You can check it out, page 455. And there's also something along these lines in Shuver Kiva Let's say your parents didn't know the halacha. And they wrote a will. There's no problem for you to follow the wishes of the parents. It's not like your parents are going against the Torah. There's no chiyuv for you to have to follow the halachas of Yerusha. It's not like a kiyam of a mitzvah to follow the laws of Yerusha for the one who's receiving the money. That's my understanding of it. So I've had situations, believe it or not, in my rabbanis, where someone comes to make a claim, and I say, listen, you should follow the will of your parents, literally, the will, and that is the will of your parents. It's kibbutz avayim, it's going to keep peace in the family. The Rambam and Hilchas Nachlaos, I may have mentioned this before, tells us not to favor one parent over the other parent. Or we Rachman Waslan could have what happened with Yaakov and Yosef and Again, if the Torah mandates it, so then it's not favoring it. That becomes the halacha itself. So you can't say that's favoring it if it's the MS. But that's where the, you know that it was the will of the parents to continue with the way of the Torah. But if the parents didn't know all these halachas, which unfortunately aren't taught enough, or the parents weren't observant, then there's no issue giving it up maybe call it a gift, and you'll have to deal with the tax applications of it, etc., which, by the way, come up in these 
laws, especially um, we are those that follow Dina Mahusadina, once the money's in your hand. You see, Dina Mahusadina may not be the driving force here of the laws, but once the money's in your hand and it comes to the taxes, then that will be a requirement. Now, why doesn't Dina Mahusadina, the law of the land, apply? So I want to reference over here what I think is a common understanding. You could find this spelled out in the Shailza Chuvas of the Maharit Sahalon, the Maharitats, was in the 16th century, I think it was contemporary of the great uh, Beis Yosef. So the Maharitats reminds us of something. And this is found in Chuva Lamed Beis, but you can find this in an earlier Chuva as well, where he talks about a Trumas Hadesha. Trimus Adeshin is the way it's being presented. When you're dealing with a government, the government's trying to collect from you, or you're involved in a dispute or a contract with a non-Jew, so then Dina Machus Adina is going to apply. But when we're dealing only with Jews, then Dina Machus Adina is not going to apply. If not, you're never going to have a situation. You'll consistently have situations where you're going to end up adjudicating cases in our cause, which you're not allowed to do in non-Jewish courts. So the venue for these disputes and the venue for the settlements is in the Jewish court. It's a fascinating uh, analysis, and it's really pretty basic to the whole analysis of Dina Machus Adina. Now, you don't really have to go there if you're familiar with the Rambam, because the Rambam in Hilchus Nachlaos, Perik Vav, Halacha Aleph, I'm going to read it to you. Ein adam You have to leave your inheritance, I'm going to state it in the positive, to the person who deserves it. Deserves it is not an emotional argument. It's based on Torah law. There is a total side discussion about whether you could write someone out of a will. We already see the discussion in the Gemara, someone that's not behaving appropriately. I dealt with such a case, I can't give you too much information, when I was involved in the courts. You have someone who never comes to visit a parent, and the parent writes the person out of the will, and it ends up getting contested. How does halacha deal with it? But at least on the surface, you wouldn't be able to do so. Lack, or here's the Lushan of the Rambam, Hayyirusha Minayorish, you can't uproot the Yerusha from the Yorish. even though it's your own mamon, it doesn't mean you have full rights to your own money. And he brings the Pasuk from Bamidbar Chavzayan in the Parsha of Inheritance, Lafisha Nema Parshas Nachalos, Haisal of Neisrael, Chukas Mishpat. That's why I'm reading it to you. It's a Chok Mishpat. Mishpat, we understand, like Parshas Mishpatim coming up soon. Laws, civil laws that are understandable. A chok is something like shotness that we can't understand. Ah, here comes the Rambam. It's interesting if you could find a source for this Rambam. So no condition could work around it. Basically what he's saying over here is that Dina Machusadina in this situation, although... The commodity that we're discussing is mamonas, is money, but it's not an Indian, it's not a topic of money, it's isurin. And an isur of a heter, let's say the laws of kashrus, the laws of ishus, the law of the land doesn't rule the day. Again, you can't violate the rule of the land. 
in a financial situation. But again, the court's not going to tell you that you have to leave your money or what percentage you have to leave to each child. So we're not going to be in violation of Dina Machus Adina. You, in other areas of Isur, you would not be able to follow the law of the land if the, the law of the land tells you you have to eat non-kosher food. But that's not what's happening over here. So this is the fascinating approach of the Rambam. But the bottom line is, we have to come full circle to find a way out. Why do we have to find a way out? As I mentioned at the beginning of the year, you already see this discussed in Rishonim. They were concerned about the conflicts, and if we had more time, which we don't have so much more time, already built into many of these halachos are halachos where the females, for example, have to be taken care of. It's not like it's a total male-dominated halachas. I'll just give you a couple of examples in the realm of how husbands have to take care of their wives, both while alive and afterwards, as well as the daughters, as far as providing for her. The whole idea of aksuba, how someone who has a, an unmarried daughter, there's the halacha straight out that one has to provide basic needs for that child. So we're not going to all of a sudden, when it comes to the laws of Yerusha, totally undermine it. If you look into, for example, Shulchan Aruch Evan Ezer, Kuf Beis Aleph, the halacha provides for single daughters, entitling them to food, clothing, shelter, until they marry, a dowry. So we're not going to all of a sudden put the daughter or put the spouse out on the street, and we're not going to have a situation where we have tremendous conflict between brothers. So we have a system around this. I don't like to call it around it because it sounds like we're undermining the halacha. But what we do is we have to look into the Shulchan Aruch and specifically into the Ramah, Reish Pei Aleph Zion. You look into Choshen Mishpat, where this is discussed, in Simon Reish Pei Aleph. Fascinating where it's discussed and the exact details of it. So the Chachamim came up with a, an approach that is called Chatzi Zohar, Chelek Chatzi Zohar. The history behind this, and it's not exactly how it's done today, is that the women would be satisfied back then with at least having a partial inheritance, half of what any of the men would get. So if you had four sons... 25, 25, 25, right? That's how it would go according to the Torah law. Each one would get 25%. The, the woman would then have to get at least half of what one of them would get. You have to come up with these exact calculations. I often confuse this. But the bottom line is, and I heard this from Rav Shechter, that Rav Shlomo Zalman said today, that's not going to work. You want to go out of your way to make sure that everyone has a fair part. Ramosha already brings down that you should at least take some money and set it aside to follow the Torah system, especially when it comes to Pishnayim, but not the dominant part of the inheritance. So I don't have time to go into the whole system here. I actually explained this in another shear, and I could give you uh, the exact document for it. But basically what's happening is the following. The father makes a declaration. 
He has to make this declaration before he's uh, dying, obviously, and not right on the deathbed. This is not a Shechiv Meirah. And he says that I'm setting aside a certain amount of money for, let's say, we'll take the daughter. And it's a, it's a money that's going to be get, gotten to her, given to her, after I die. And it's an extraordinary amount of money. Therefore, when he dies, there is now a debt that the brothers have to pay to her. But they're not going to be able to pay that debt, so she's going to end up with nothing. So therefore, in lieu of that, you end up following the, the trust and estates. You follow the regular will. So you, you, you do a regular will. Hopefully, even Stephen, it's divided. And then you create this hischaivus, this debt, where the debt has to go away. And it's not going to go away by bankrupting the entire family. I think another way of doing it without putting all the burden onto the woman is everyone is left with debt where you leave to everyone an obligation of a certain amount of money. Again, the assumption over here is that once the father dies, the children then are going to be, in a way, both the creditors and the debtors, and you end up equaling it out by not following that charge. Again, it sounds like a roundabout, which is for the purpose of Shalom Bayes. There's a lot more to say, but hopefully I gave you some of the overview that may not pop up in this daf, but I thought it was a good daf to explain it. Maybe we'll have a chance next week to get into some of the issues of when Yerusha goes from the husband to the wife. Is it from Erison? Is it from Nesuin? And how about in the opposite direction? I just want to clarify that in Torah law, it's going to go from the wife to the husband. I want to try to explain how it goes from the husband to the wife as well. And at what point does this exchange work, especially in the Torah law, when it goes from the wife to the husband. So that is the clarified, it's the last point of the shear.